And we would say, do you hear about those miners? 300 feet underground in that explosion just north of Frankfurt and how they were buried alive. Jesus would look into our eyes like nobody can look into your eyes and say, do you think that because those miners suffered that way, their guilt was greater than all the other Germans or Americans for that matter? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These five verses are filled with extraordinary insight about the way the world really is. Not the way the world thinks that it is, but the way the world really is. And when we're done, you're going to have two things to choose between the way Jesus views you in the world and the way the world views itself and you. You can't have it both ways. There are radically different views of life in these five verses. And I want to take one sentence out of these five verses and unfold four verses in that sentence. The sentence is, verse 3, verse 5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the four verses that I, or four words that I want us to look at are the words all, likewise, perish, and repent. We'll take that last word and make it a bridge to the table this morning. So let's focus first of all on the word all. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. A group of people have come to Jesus with the report of something absolutely unspeakably horrible. Some Galileans had evidently come down to do some worship in the temple. No doubt, God-fearers of some kind. And they have a sheep, maybe, or a pigeon, or some turtle doves. They're on their way up to the altar, and all of a sudden, soldiers break in to the court and slaughter them with the sword and pick them up and dump their blood on the altar and slit the neck of that sheep and dump it and mix the blood and set it afire and mock the altar of the living God and His worshipers. And these people are just appalled and they come to Jesus. Now, they don't say it, but Jesus hears it in their voice. Namely, this. These Galileans must have done something terrible for God to allow such a terrible end to come to them. An extraordinary tragedy must have been preceded by an extraordinary guilt. Now, I just pause here for a minute. How would you respond to that? If you were in Jesus' shoes, somebody came to you and said, Do you hear about those Germans? And you could tell by listening to their voice, they thought those guys must have been really boozing it up down there with girly pictures all over the 
300 foot deep cave and a lot of drugs going on and a lot of sleeping around when they're up on top. And wow, these guys must have been awful. And you could tell, what would you say? Unless you're saturated with Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you, you would not have said what Jesus said. Nobody responds like Jesus responds here. Unless they have been with Jesus so long that they've absorbed His radical, unsentimental, incredible approaches to people. Here's what He said. He said, no, their sin was not extraordinarily horrible. Their sin was ordinarily horrible, just like yours. And you're going to die too if you don't repent. Is that the way you would have responded? In other words, instead of saying they are no more sinful than you are, and I don't know how to explain this tragedy, he says... You are just as sinful as they are, and you better get ready for that tragedy. That's the way Jesus deals with people. You come to Jesus with a problem, and He deals with a person. You can never get Jesus to be theoretical, merely. So what we have here in the first place is the teaching that all of us are extremely sinful. Underline the word all and the word extremely. Everybody in this room, up and down, are extremely sinful. So sinful that when calamity strikes, nobody should be surprised. The amazing thing in this universe is not that sinners perish horribly but that this morning you've got one more hour of life to repent. That's the amazing thing. That's the point of Jesus. That's what I said is so radically different from the world. The world takes such offense when human beings are brought low. Jesus stands in awe that human beings have another day to repent. The amazing thing in this universe is not that sinners perish but that God is so slow to anger and abounding in mercy and steadfast love so that we've got one more hour this morning, maybe, to repent. Now, if that doesn't surprise you, if what amazes you in this life is not that you're sitting here well, alive, able to repent and deal with God, you haven't thought the thoughts of Jesus Christ yet. If tragedies amaze you, if cave-ins amaze you, if bus crashes amaze you, and you hold your fist in God's face, or you just stand there and call Him to account, you have not thought the thoughts of Jesus. For Jesus says the amazing thing in this world is not that Pilate killed people, but that He hasn't killed us. Yet. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What does likewise mean? 
Second word, likewise. Does it mean literally, if you don't repent, you will be killed by a governor in a worship service? Well, it can't mean that. And the reason you know it can't mean that is because when you read on to verse 5, Jesus brings in another illustration about the Tower of Siloam. This tower that probably stood beside the pool of Siloam where all those sick people were waiting to get into the water, crash, and 18 of them were were killed. And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Well, you can't perish under a tower and be murdered by Pilate at the same time. It does not mean literally likewise in the same way. Well, what does it mean? Somebody might suggest, well, it means just die. That's what perish means. Just die. But that won't work either, will it? Because it says, unless you repent, this will happen to you. Presumably then, if you if you do repent, it won't happen to you. But we all die. Jesus died. All the apostles died. Every Christian that's ever lived has died. So it can't just mean physically die. Because then you wouldn't say, unless you repent, this will happen to you. Well, what does it mean? What is this likewise? Here's what I think it means. I think Jesus is saying something like this. You, you remember those Galileans? That was a horrible way to come to an end. They weren't ready for it. It took them off guard. It surprised them. They were shocked by it. And likewise, if you don't repent, you will come to a horrible end. You won't be ready for it. It will surprise you. So the two things wherein this likewise consists, I believe, are the horror of the end we will come to and the unexpectedness and unpreparedness for it if we haven't repented. Likewise, you shall perish. Perish. Third word, perish. What does perish mean? I've already ruled out die. Physically die. Because there's a condition placed on it. If you repent, you won't perish. And yet we will all die. What then does perish mean? I think it means uh, experience divine judgment or wrath after death. Uh, he links it up with sin as the cause, and he makes uh, repentance the escape. And therefore, final judgment is the most natural understanding. And then when you start reading more widely in the New Testament, you discover that the word perish has a range of meanings. It can mean be lost, like a coin is lost. It can mean die, like physically die. And very often, it can mean die or perish in the sense of what happens in judgment beyond. Let me give you some illustrations. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not what? Perish. But the alternative to perish 
have everlasting life. So the two alternatives you have are everlasting life and perish. So perish in John 3.16 is uh, some kind of experience beyond the grave when you're not included in eternal life. That's the least we can say at this point. Here's an example from the writings of the Apostle Paul who uses it this way several times. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 18, If Christ has not been raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, if Christ has been raised, those who have died in Christ will not perish. And if Christ has not been raised, if it's all a sham and all a hoax and Christianity is, is all a sham, then we're of all men most to be pitied and those who have fallen asleep believing in Jesus will perish. No eternal life. In uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, The word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. That's what I think perishing refers to. And Jesus himself unfolds this judgment and this perishing for us. For example, in Matthew 25, where a king is pictured with all the nations before him, and then he switches metaphors, and you have a shepherd and goats and sheep, and he divides the goats and the sheep. And in verse 46 of that chapter, it says, the goats will depart into eternal punishment, and the sheep will depart into eternal life. And so, life beyond the grave and eternal punishment beyond the grave are the alternatives before us and I think what he means by perishing here is eternal punishment in hell, in torment. You know, in Luke, just three chapters later, there's the description of the rich man who did not repent and the poor man who rested in God, and they died. And the poor man went to the bosom of Abraham in heaven, and the rich man went to the torment of Hades, and in the flames he cries out, that something might bridge this chasm. And Abraham says, it cannot be done. Now, I hope that you don't take this talk about perishing as mere church talk that has no relevance for where you live and whom you work with. I wish that I had it on a card. The words... Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I could give out rubber bands to everybody and, and you would take the card and put it in the visor of your window or your windshield inside and put a rubber band around it so that you have it right there. When you drive down town or go to the mall, all those people that you're looking at in other cars and on the street, you would feel they are perishing unless they repent. They are perishing unless they repent. They're going to perish eternally unless they repent. And that would just be ringing in your ears so that you wouldn't look at people the way the world looks at people. Are they fat? Are they skinny? Are they blonde? Are they brown? Are they tan? Are they not? Are they rich? Are they poor? What do they drive? 
that would all be so utterly irrelevant. And you would say, she is going to perish. This clerk is going to perish. My insurance man's going to perish. My partner at work's going to perish. My roommate is going to perish. My children, my wife, they're going to perish if they don't repent. And that you just could not go through life thinking this isn't going to happen. I don't want us to treat this as just church talk. This talk is just as practical as this brochure that most of you received in the mail this week or will receive from Dr. Coop, our Surgeon General, about AIDS. I thought a lot about this brochure and its relation to my message this morning, and I want you to think for a few minutes about the connection. What this has to teach us, this brochure that's going to all the households in this country, is this. The world without any special saving grace from the Holy Spirit teaching them to love, believes deeply, up perhaps to the tune of $3 billion deeply, that something must be done because people are perishing. We will pay anything, the world says, if we could wake up America to the dangers of this disease And break it. And I say it's a good investment of our tax dollars. But now just think a minute. Joe Hallett was sitting right down in the fourth pew there in the first service. Joe's got AIDS, may not be with us next year. And so I looked at him so he'd know I knew he was there. And I said, look. All AIDS can do to you is take your life. That's all. And then it's dead. It's gone. And Jesus said, Do not fear that which can kill the body and after that has nothing more that it can do. I will tell you what to fear. Fear that which after it has killed the body can cast both soul and body, into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear that. And so I just ask you reasonably, here's the world's wisdom, and it's not bad this time. Here's the wisdom of God. They are running in parallel tracks. One difference. This book says 1,000 times more serious than AIDS is sin. Do you agree? One thousand times more serious than AIDS is sin. And there are two differences between sin and AIDS. Sin will kill you eternally. AIDS can only take you temporally and then glory if you've trusted Him. Secondly, sin is infecting everybody. Now, you who are Christians, at least, ought to see the logic of this. If you think this is a good idea like I do, what must we then do for sinners? What money should we be willing to release 
What efforts ought we to be willing to take? I hope we lick this. And I'd love to see us make a walloping dent in the sin of Minneapolis for the salvation of people. C.S. Lewis is a favorite of mine. And I want to close before we move to the table with some quotes from Lewis. I want to show you what made this man's heart tick. Most of you know him, I think. He was a Cambridge and Oxford literature scholar who died the same day that John F. Kennedy died so that we will celebrate his 21st anniversary of his death this November. His book, C.S. Lewis books, are still being printed by the thousands 25 years after his death. Why? Why, I ask, is this man still ministering long after he's dead? Very few people keep on ministering long after they're dead like this man. Here's one of the answers, I believe. He did not have an elitist love for his discipline. He did not have an elitist, artsy love for literature or music or culture. He lived for the salvation of sinners. Most people don't know this about C.S. Lewis. The man had a passion for evangelism. And I want to read you some, some excerpts from three of his writings as we close. To burden your own heart in your discipline, your trade, your profession, wherever you are, so that you'll be like C.S. Lewis. This is from The Weight of Glory. It is hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about the glory of our neighbor. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption, such as if you now meet, you meet only in a nightmare. All day long, in some degree, we are helping each other to one or the other of these two destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. Their life is to our life like the life of a gnat. But it is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or immortal splendors. And then listen to the impact that insight had on his own labor as a literary scholar. Quote, the Christian will take literature a little less seriously than the cultured pagan. The Christian knows from the outset that the salvation of one soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and all the tragedies in the world. Now that tips us off to where Lewis's heart is, but not until 1952 did it get expressed 
with anything like the clarity it's expressed in what I'm about to read. In 1952, Norman Pittinger at the University of Chicago, a liberal theologian, criticized in the Christian century C.S. Lewis for having used a geometric analogy to explain the Trinity, and Pittinger laid into him for being so simplistic. Lewis got so angry that he wrote back in a tone and a manner I've never read anywhere else, and his heart is open for us. Listen to what he says. I don't have the English accent, but I've got some of the passion that I'll try to put into this sentence. Most of my books are evangelistic. Do you know that? That's his perspective. Most of my books are evangelistic, addressed to those outside. I was writing for the people, not the clergy. Dr. Pittinger would be a more helpful critic if he advised a cure as well as asserting many diseases. How does he himself do the work? What methods and with what success does he employ when he's trying to convert the great mass of storekeepers and lawyers and realtors and morticians and policemen and artisans who surround him in his city? There's the heart of C.S. Lewis. I want to save people with my books. That's why I write books, Pittinger. Don't criticize me for trying to find an analogy that will help somebody understand what it means that Jesus is God. I want to save them. What are you doing, Pittinger? And I would just ask you with less vehemence than that, because I'm asking myself, what are we doing? I mean, are we looking at our job and our esteem and our products and our vacations and our money and our houses and our and finding a significance in life in what will be mortal like civilizations when it's it's immortals that we deal with at work this person will perish or be a splendor to God forever well I lead you to the table with a word about repentance. Unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. And here's what repentance means, brothers and sisters. Let me put it like this. Repentance is turning from all known sin in your life. Planned sin, past sin, present sins of attitude. It is admitting that underneath that sin... There is a corrupt nature that I need to have overcome by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, it means laying my sins on Jesus, my sacrifice who can cover and pay for them all. Fourthly, it means taking an oath of allegiance to Jesus Christ, my sovereign, my king, my glory, my joy, my crown, my counselor, my advisor, my savior, my master, the King of Kings, I swear allegiance. And finally, it means hoping in the promises of God. And I invite you earnestly to repent and express that as we sing hymn number 427. And shall we stand as we sing?